All right, so our next speaker is uh, Dr. Stephen Grinspoon, who's uh, from Harvard Medical College. Uh, he's well known in um, uh, many areas of HIV research, but he's going to talk to us today about uh, cardiovascular disease and the effects of statin uh, on its prevention. Thank you very much, and I really welcome the opportunity to speak to you today. Uh, my task today is to talk about statin use and cardiovascular disease in HIV, and uh, listed here are my financial relationships. Um, uh, as far as learning objectives are concerned, I'd like uh, to be you to be able to describe the current epidemiology of cardiovascular disease in HIV, uh, which is a very important topic for us today as HIV patients are living longer. Uh, to be able to describe at least a little bit the unique pathophysiology of cardiovascular disease in HIV, and then describe the potential utility and limitations of statin use to prevent cardiovascular disease in this population of patients. So those are the three objectives. So I think I'm supposed to read the question. Most epidemiological uh, studies uh, suggest that the rates of cardiovascular disease in HIV, and I'm sorry for the print here, are equal to that seen in non-HIV, 10% higher, 50 to 100% higher, or 200% higher. This is your pre-quiz question. Excellent. Okay, yeah. So that is the correct answer. Uh, most studies suggest that the rates are 50 to 100 percent higher, uh, although there are some newer studies which may suggest the rates are coming down a bit, um, but we'll talk about that. Um, so in, what is the current status of cardiovascular disease prevention in HIV? Um, so even as the rates of death and mortality related to HIV have decreased with the use of more potent antiretroviral therapy, CBD rates in general remain increased among HIV patients that are a leading cause of morbidity and mortality. Uh, and there really is a very limited understanding of the mechanisms and treatment strategies for cardiovascular disease in HIV. And to date, um, there have not been, uh, except for one study which I'm going to tell you about, any large-scale primary prevention strategies to uh, test uh, uh, to prevent cardiovascular disease in this population of patients. So <laughs> this slide is a compilation of seven or six or seven or so of the uh, biggest epidemiological studies comparing cardiovascular disease rates in HIV versus non-HIV. So the key to this slide is that every one of these studies has a non-HIV comparator, okay? And the little yellow dotted line is the line of unity. So if every, all the studies were that line, there would be no difference between HIV and non-HIV. And you can see that the relative risk is pretty consistent across many studies, including a very wonderful study by Freiburg and JAMA Internal Medicine in our one of our initial studies and one by Judy Courier here in this city, et cetera. And most of these studies suggest about a 50 to 100 percent increase in cardiovascular disease relative to non-HIV. And this is true even when you control for traditional risk factors, and that's important. So in the VAX cohort, the, the, the overall adjusted rate was 1.48 after adjusting for Framingham risk, comorbidities, and substance use. Now, the fact that you can adjust for these factors and the risk remains at 1.48 suggests that it's more than just the traditional risk factors that are contributing to the excess of cardiovascular disease in HIV-infected patients, and that's an important point. All right, 
so again, sorry for the way these look, but which of the following is, and this is a harder question than the first one, so we're building up here. So which of the following, uh, and don't worry if you don't get this one, uh, I'll explain it. Um, which of the following is not a common feature of coronary plaque in HIV uh, patients? Um, so not. Eccentric, high-risk, fatty plaque lesions, inflamed plaque, or heavily calcified plaque. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, uh, that's true. Um, heavily calcified plaque are typically not seen in HIV-infected patients. And I'm going to go through the distinction between non-calcified and calcified. Now, you may have heard in the literature, oh, you have a high calcium score, that means you're going to have a heart attack. It's true epidemiologically that the CAC score does uh, relate in an associational way to the presence of heart disease in terms of, but likely it's just a marker of traditional risk factors like smoking, et cetera. In fact, the real culprit lesions in both HIV and non-HIV are these eccentric high-risk fatty plaques which are inflamed. And that's the, those are the type of lesions that are preponderant uh, in HIV as I'll show you. Now, getting back to the, uh, to the meaning and utility of assessing traditional risk factors, the data here are, are from our study by Gene Triant, but similar data would have been seen and are seen in the study by Freiberg. And this is, in our study uh, from 2007, the relative risk was 1.75, so there's a 75% increase in the risk of myocardial infarction in HIV versus non-HIV. And it's true that the prevalence of the troika of hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia were all increased, okay, HIV versus non-HIV. But when you did a fancy, you know, adjusted analysis, these risks accounted for only about 25%. And amazingly, when you take off this 25% from the 1.75, you get a number that's very similar to what Freiburg got. I mean, the consistency between these two studies across the country at different sites is really pretty amazing. Um, and newer studies do suggest the importance of genetics, inflammation, and immune dysfunction as uh, specific risk factors. So it's important to remember in light of the prior two lectures that you heard um, uh, from Dr. Smith and Benson that um, HIV is both a state of immune activation and suppression. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. At the same time, the immune system is suppressed, but it's also activated, okay? And there, therein lies the trouble for the cardiovascular system. The suppression is not so much a problem as it is, of course, it is for HIV in terms of getting these opportunistic infections. Those seem largely under control with effective ART. But as Connie made the point of saying, uh, inflammation and immune activation persist despite uh, active antiretroviral therapy. This is a really important point with respect to cardiovascular disease in HIV-infected patients. So, let me give you a little bit of a background here. In the general population, myocardial infarction does not typically result, and this, I, before I went into this field a number of years ago, I did not understand what I'm about to tell you, does not typically result from the gradual expansion of a subclinical coronary plaque. So if you think of a pipe that's full of guck from your, you know, in your, in your uh, bathroom, and it's full of guck, and it sort of squeezes off, and you have to get a rotor rooter to take it out, okay? 
That's actually not the situation that is occurring when someone has an MRI. When that pipe closes off slowly, collaterals form. That's the person who has angina on the fifth step reliably, okay? But they typically don't go on to have a heart attack. The more worrisome people are the people who have these eccentric plaques that are off to the side, flow is maintained until the plaque ruptures, and then there's a lot of myocardium at risk. So in fact, the HIV population, as I'll show you, have much more of the flavor of vulnerable high-risk fatty plaques. And as I mentioned, recent studies show that these plaques are inflamed, they have vulnerable features, and as I'll show you, they're associated with immune activation markers, bringing in the prior slide. So this is a study that we did, uh, that we published a couple years ago uh, now. Um, and uh, what we did is we compared um, arterial inflammation assessed by FDG PET scanning, which is uh, a nucleotide uh, imaging scan, a molecular imaging technique, which looks at inflammation based on the turnover of glucose. And you can see that the activity of the inflammation in the aorta among HIV-infected patients was much higher than a group of very carefully Framingham risk match controls. And in fact, the inflammation was about equal to non-HIV patients with known cardiovascular disease. And this just shows you a control patient and an HIV patient. You can see along the ascending aorta here how bright it is, suggesting significant increases in arterial inflammation. And um, we actually have some preliminary data that suggests that even when you use effective antiretroviral therapy, you don't knock down this inflammation despite restoring immune function. Again, making the point that, you know, you have to do something beyond just uh, treating effectively with antiretroviral therapy. But that's not what this slide so This shows at baseline that there is a significant increase in arterial inflammation. And uh, as was mentioned before, this relationship uh, is not related to generalized markers of inflammation like CRP or D-dimer. Actually, it's most strongly related to uh, markers of immune uh, activation. In this example, soluble CD163, which is a marker of monocyte activation. Now, what are you looking at when I show you that you know, picture with all the bright red in the arterial inflammation. What are you looking at? Well, if you do histopathology on these patients, and uh, this is taken from a group of non-HIV, but it makes the same point. If you look at the um, plaque here, you'll see this is the intimal surface, the fibrous cap, and subintimally, there is a line of dark blue staining, CD68 staining macrophages. And you can see that the plaque it, that's lit up by the FTG really shows and demonstrates a significant infiltration of activated macrophages into the fibrous cap that, as I showed you, are related to the level of immune activation in these patients. So it's kind of interesting, and it's a, it's a hint of what we might do to help uh, prevent disease in this group of patients. Now I'll turn to another technique, which is CT angiography, and this is kind of getting like a, a virtual coronary angiography. There's no, there's no um, angiogram stuck up into the coronary artery, but you can do very careful CAT scan analysis and reconstruct the images. And this study uh, we published a couple of years ago now, but Wendy Post published an even larger study from the MAX cohort with really complete agreement with our results, which I was very happy to see. And this slide makes a couple of points. So first of all, we again matched HIV patients and control patients extremely carefully for traditional risks. And the first point is that the risk of plaque in any coronary artery, now I moved from the, aor from the uh, aorta to actually the coronary arteries, the risk of plaque was about twice as high in HIV-infected patients. 
you'll notice that the calcium score was not any different, but the number of non-calcified uh, plaques was significantly higher, making the point that I made before that it's the non-calcified plaques that are higher in this group of patients. And in general, the prevalence of plaque, any kind of plaque, is about twice as high in these patients. And, you know, these patients are 45 years old with extremely low Framingham risk scores. So basically, this is a very high prevalence of plaque in unsuspecting HIV-infected patients who do not have any known cardiovascular disease. Now, we went on to characterize this in terms of high-risk morphology using uh, some very standardized criteria, and one is... Uh, called low attenuation plaque, and that refers to plaque that's actually not only not calcified, but very fatty, okay, and you can see that here, it would have a low attenuation. And the other characteristic is that the plaque is eccentric to the lumen, of, uh, to the lumen as I mentioned before. And when we characterize those specific characteristics of high-risk plaque in HIV versus non-HIV, you can see that not only do these patients have more plaque, they have more high-risk plaque. Okay, so, and these are the types of plaque that are cardiologists associate with um, plaque rupture and sudden cardiac death. So what I presented so far before I get into the rationale for statins is a new paradigm of ather for atherogenesis in HIV, and that is that persistent viral replication and other factors, including microbial translocation, leads to T-cell activation, monocyte activation, and these really atypical plaques that are associated with inflammation uh, and atypical features in association with immune activation. So if we know this, what are some of our current challenges then to preventing and treating cardiovascular disease in HIV? And I think uh, I'll outline some of the challenges that uh, we face. One is understanding the optimal timing and use of antiretrovirals therapy itself to maximize effects on immune function and minimize metabolic effects. Um, another point is that we need to identify patients with the disease. You, you don't want to throw a big therapeutic approach at people who don't have the problem that you're trying to prevent. Um, and there are not that many uh, really highly effective risk identification strategies at the current time. We need to develop a safe and effective strategy uh, for primary prevention, especially for those not identified by the current algorithms but with significant sub subclinical disease. And we need to develop an intervention, if you think about it, that addresses both the traditional and immune-related factors. Because what I told you was that traditional accounts for 25%. So not, that's not 1%. That's 25%. So we need something that, you know, accounts that can sort of target both the traditional and non-traditional risk factors in this group of patients. So let me spend a moment on SMART and START, okay? Uh, and these were really important trials for the HIV world, but also for the cardiovascular world, as I'll tell you. So SMART, as you remember, uh, randomized, was a randomized trial of continuous versus intermittent ART-guided therapy by the CD4 count. Begun when, it was begun when less than 250 and stopped when greater than 350. And basically, it showed, uh, uh, in contradistinction to its hypothesis, that uh, stringent therapy uh, did, you know, suppress AIDS events, but also, CVD events, okay? The hypothesis of SMART was the opposite. The hypothesis was back off on the ART, it's toxic, and therefore you'll have less CVD events if you use the minimum amount of ART therapy possible. Wrong, <laughs> okay? 
that paper is really important. It's in the New England Journal. You should read it, okay? Basically, it says the opposite. CVD events, you know, improve. Now, the p-value, people argue, was 0.049, and it was hypothesis generating, et cetera. I was not associated with the study. But nonetheless, it's clearly opposite from the hypothesis. And then you have the START study, which is a randomized trial of immediate versus delayed uh, therapy in naive HIV patients with CD4 greater than 500 versus initiation at, at less than uh, CD350. Uh, and in this study, earlier initiation reduced AIDS events, but not CVD events. So in this particular study, um, clearly uh, it's good to you know, initiate ART early, but there weren't enough events to show that earlier initiation reduced CVD events. So we're left with two studies, one of which showed if you're on ART, keep it stringent. The other one showing where it's not clear that if earlier institution of ART will prevent cardiovascular disease. So these are really two important studies to keep in mind as I continue this talk. Um, all right, so let's turn to statins, and we'll have a question at the beginning here. Statins have the unique potential to work in HIV because um, they reduce triglycerides, they improve glucose simultaneously with lipids, they lower LDL, or they lower LDL and may have anti-inflammatory effects. Okay, excellent, yes. So they don't really reduce triglycerides that much, depends on which statin, a little bit, uh, but that's not really why they're used. There's more potent triglyceride-lowering drugs out there. Not only do they not improve glucose, some of them can worsen glucose. Um, we'll talk about that. Not all statins worsen, glu worsen glucose, so I don't want you to leave with that message, but some can. Um, they definitely lower LDL, but the main reason why people are interested in them is not only do they lower LDL, but they may have anti-inflammatory effects. And I'm going to contrast some of the effects of statins to the study Connie presented on uh, aspirin, uh, which did not show an effect in some of these immune activation markers. So this will be a nice uh, juxtaposition to that. So what would be some potential interventions for cardiovascular disease and HIV? So, you know, you can sort of put these things in two buckets. And, and, and none of this is mutually exclusive. You should, you should always consider the maximum holistic, you know, uh, risk modification strategy with healthy lifestyle, et cetera. But traditional would include antihypertensive therapy, anti-diabetic, aspirin, and statins, and, of course, not... Uh, um, Counseling for smoking would be extremely important as well. And you should do all those things. Um, uh, but statins uh, clearly uh, modify traditional risks and would be thrown in that bucket. But then you have another bucket of immune inflammatory module, modulators, which would include antiretroviral therapy, CCR5 antagonists, as discussed by Dr. Smith, interleukin antagonists, methotrexate, and oh, by the way, statins. So you notice, obviously, uh, in yellow here, I'm trying to make a point, which is that statins fall into two buckets, okay? They can definitely modify traditional risk factors like LDL, but they have some potency with respect to immune inflammatory, which is why uh, people have focused on them as a potential treatment strategy. So statins are among the best studied drugs in the history of the earth, okay? There is a long track record with statins. And generally, they work, okay? 
This is a this is a study from the Lancet. It has nothing to do with HIV. Okay, but uh, it provides a little bit of a snapshot in non-HIV infected patients. Twenty six studies with one hundred and seventy thousand patients. Statins were shown to reduce events by twenty two percent per each thirty nine milligram per deciliter lowering in LDL. And you can see that the overall effect here is clearly to the left of the bar line of unity. So statins are effective, and they have, a, and they have a, a good effect, and it relates to the amount that they lower LDL, at least in these non-HIV studies. Now, of course, we have new guidelines today about how to use statins, and these guidelines were put out in 2013, and they cause, have caused a huge amount of confusion, both uh, in the non-HIV field and in the HIV field. So don't worry if you're confused or don't know what to do because no one knows what to do, okay? The old guidelines were the NCEP guidelines and they were more LDL focused. These new guidelines basically, basically when you cut through this fancy algorithm, uh, suggested if you don't have diabetes and your LDL is less than 190, you calculate this risk score, okay? And this is the ASCVD risk score, and you can Google it, uh, and uh, uh, you can calculate it, and maybe you do for some of your patients. It's a sort of an odd scoring thing because um, it uh, gives very, very high scores to certain racial groups that um, uh, were found to have high scores. And the important thing for you guys sitting out there is, you know, if you ask me, were any HIV patients included in this, in the, you know, development of this guideline, in this calculator, the answer would be no, okay, no, okay. So it is very, very unclear whether this guideline actually refers effectively uh, to, the, to your patient. And it's meant to be a guideline. If you read these data carefully, if you read this paper in circulation, they actually have a little footnote by HIV and it says, warning, you know, no data are available in HIV-infected patients. So we clearly need more data. But the guidelines say right now that if you uh, have people who are less than 190 without diabetes, if you calculate the score, if it's more than 7.5 to 10 in that zone, you could, con you could consider a statin. And that's what they were, they used the word consider. Uh, it gets sort of mandatory up at the 15 to 20% range. But again, we're not sure how those data uh, apply to HIV. And in fact, um, there is some suggestion that these algorithms don't particularly work well and that um, many HIV patients with high-risk plaque would not receive recommendations even by the 2013 guidelines. And this is a study done by Markel Lazani in our group in which she looked at the percent of patients for whom statins would be recommended based on the old 2004 uh, guidelines and then the new 2013 guidelines. And so um, a couple of points here. In general, the new guidelines uh, sweep up more patients to statins, okay? The, 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 the bars get higher when you go from the old guidelines to the new guidelines, okay? Um, but you can see here that uh, even among patients with coronary plaque or two high-risk features, only 25% are recommended, would be recommended for statins based on this. So the, the guidelines in, in the types of plaque in HIV are going across each other. They're not sort of meeting in a, in a way that's coherent. And I think we need to figure out, figure this out. And uh, we have a study which I'm going to tell you about shortly that's going to try and provide some data, for, much needed data for this field. 
So I want to mention one last study here before I get into statins in HIV, and that's a, the all-important Jupiter study. Okay, you may have seen this in the New England Journal. It got a lot of press. And th this is a study in which um, non-HIV-infected patients uh, who had um, a low LDL but a high CRP, more than two, were randomized to uh, resuvastatin or placebo. And they followed patients out for like five years. And uh, you can see that resuvastatin had a very significant effect to prevent cardiovascular events in these patients non-HIV without known disease, okay? Some interesting points about um, Jupiter. First, the LDL was reduced 47 milligrams per deciliter, and it should have resulted by my meta-analysis I just showed you of a 70, 0.73 hazard ratio. But instead, the hazard ratio was 0 0.56. So the hazard ratio was bigger than would have been predicted by the lowering of LDL alone. Again, hinting that there may be something about statins that are going beyond LDL, and that's what we're hoping to see in, or to use in HIV patients as well. And finally, when we talk about statins in HIV, it's important to know that there are some data out there to suggest that they do have some important immune, uh, immune activating effects. So first of all, in terms of LDL lowering the more traditional aspects, there are a number of studies to show that statins do reduce LDL uh, in an effective way in HIV patients. But I want to draw your attention to the lower part of the slide in which I show that statins actually reduce soluble CD14, uh, tissue factor positive macrophages, and activated CD4 uh, T cells. So, and this is a study by, uh, by uh, uh, McComsey's group and Funderburg, et cetera, have contributed to these studies, and we ourselves also have some studies in this regard, which I'm not showing. So there is a sort of accumulating evidence that statins may, in HIV patients, may reduce important immune activation uh, markers. Are statins safe in HIV? It's obviously an important question. So this is a study that was published by Silverberg in the Annals, and it's an important study, and it shows that among HIV-infected patients in over 800 patients, um, the the prevalence of grade three or four events um, in terms of liver or uh, muscle, CK or AST, uh, ALT, AST, were pretty low. Now, you know, you can be a positive or negative person. It's a test how you interpret this slide, okay? So if you're a negative person, you're going to say, well, 1.1 is four times as high as 0 0.3. So the, the, uh, you know, the ratio of adverse events with statins is 400% increased in HIV-infected patients. And technically, that's true, except you're comparing 1.1 to 0.3. So in fact, most of us interpret this study, which is an important study in the Annals of Internal Medicine, to suggest that though there's a slight increase in, effect, in uh, you know, adverse effects, in general, these are, drugs are pretty well tolerated. And these drugs that are included in this are not including the most recent uh, the available statins, which I'll talk about shortly. Now, in terms of the statins that are available to you um, and that you might consider using, um, they are listed here, pravastatin, atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, and pitavastatin. And you can see here that um, some of them have effects on glucose. Um, the ones that, in the literature, at least in um, some studies, uh, have that effect include atorvastatin, a little bit in more resubistatin. So those are the ones that you might want to avoid in someone with uh, diabetes. They all seem to lower LDL pretty well. Um, 
the new kid on the block is pitavastatin, um, which is approved a couple years ago. Um, it's metabolized by glucuronidation, so it's minimally metabolized by CYP3A, and there are no known interactions with antiretroviral therapy, and there are no dose limitations, and it is included in the 2013 uh, guidelines. So what are the effects of statins on plaque and HIV? After all, that's what we're getting after. And this is a small pilot study that we published a couple years ago in which we randomized patients at that time to a torvastatin because patavastatin wasn't available. And you can see that we, had, we showed significant effects uh, with statins to actually reduce high-risk plaque, change LDL, and actually change markers of arterial inflammation like LPPLA2. And here's an example of what you could see in a, in a patient. And this is a very large, eccentric, non-calcified fatty plaque just sitting there. And this is what happened uh, after a year of statin therapy to this particular lesion. It, it shrunk considerably. And in the main, there was a significant 19-20% uh, reduction in plaque volume in response to statins. So these data suggest that there's a need for a large randomized clinical trial to look at patients with low traditional risk scores who are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease uh, with subclinical plaque and inflammation. And it's really unknown if statins will prevent cardiovascular disease and should be recommended for HIV patients. The, the thinking is that they may well work, uh, but we don't know. There hasn't been a, a large randomized, randomized trial with uh, cardiovascular events as the uh, endpoint. And though they are largely well tolerated, we don't know uh, safety, and we don't really know how they might work either in terms of whether they would work by lowering LDL or effects on inflammatory pathways. So this leads me to my last few slides. Um, and as you may know, uh, there is a very large NIH-funded trial out there called Reprieve. And I uh, applaud the federal government to put, put, the government's putting about $40 million into this trial to try and uh, improve the lives of HIV-infected patients um, and prevent cardiovascular disease. And um, I am one of the uh, co-PIs of this trial, which is opened uh, at 100 sites across the United States, Thailand, and Canada, um, and hopefully, ultimately, uh, Brazil and South and, and Africa as well. So it's an international trial, and it's, um, primarily funded by NIH, and we're using the ACTG trial network to um, implement the trial. And there are many sites in LA, and if you go to our website, uh, reprievetrial.org, you can see sites near you that you can refer patients if interested. So what is Reprieve? Reprieve is a study in which our goal is to take asymptomatic HIV patients without a history of cardiovascular disease and a low to moderate ASCVD risk and randomize them to patavastatin, the placebo I just mentioned, um, uh, uh, the, the statin I just mentioned, or placebo for about four to five years of follow-up. And to look at primary endpoints, death, MI, unstable angina, stroke, revascularization, et cetera. And we have also a sub-study embedded in looking at plaque using coronary angiography. So as I mentioned, the endpoints are what we call MACE, so MI, stroke, angina, et cetera. And secondarily, we're looking at some really important things like AIDS events, non-AIDS events, liver, kidney, diabetes, relationship of immune function and LDL to MACE, and of course, safety, very important to us. As I said, we aim to, to randomize over 6,000 6, patients to this study, and there's an 800-person sub-study in which we're looking at the effects of statins on plaque per se. 
So the novelty of this is it's the first major cardiovascular prevention trial in HIV. It's certainly the largest to date focused on CVD prevention, and it rarely represents a new paradigm of long-term prevention for chronic comorbidities. And importantly, an uh, important partnership between the heart, lung, and blood, infectious disease, and Office of AIDS research to fund this important study. So with that, I'll end with some uh, conclusions and future directions, which I think hopefully will be obvious from this talk, that both traditional and non-traditional risk factors contribute to cardi increased cardiovascular disease risk in HIV, which manifests itself uniquely as an inflamed, non-calcified high-risk plaque in association with immune marker, immune activation. That, uh, remember, please, that modulation of traditional and non-traditional risks is necessary probably to prevent CVD and HIV. And that statins, you know, may not be a panacea, but they certainly, uh, in a thought experiment, seem to be potentially effective to prevent cardiovascular disease and HIV. And certainly, there's enough data to suggest a large trial to now determine if that is indeed the case. So I will stop there, and thank you very much for your attention. Generated quite a few questions All right. to start with. <laughs> I got a plane to catch. No, <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I okay. will get through we'll all let the. You off the I will get through shortly. all the questions. Okay. Guidelines suggest starting a statin in those with a seven percent ten-year risk of coronary event. Yeah. This is obviously determined by the calculator you talked about. Because of this, some people because the lack of data on HIV and that use of that cardiac calculator, some people have suggested using 5% as the threshold for starting statins in HIV. What do you think about that? I think when there's lack of data, we should get data before making any kind of presumption. St st starting at 5% would presume this underpredicts, um, and we don't have any data to that in that regard yet. Um, I suggest that the uh, this is somewhat selfish, but I think it's not entirely selfish, is that when you don't know, it's good to per, put a person in an you know, NIH-approved uh, trial to answer that very question. We, need, we do need to understand whether these patients should or shouldn't be ran a, use a statin. And I think that is the, this tension that you're you know, expressing on that card is what we're trying to answer with our trial. You're, you, are, you are doctors, you are healthcare practitioners, you can put anyone on a statin you want. It's an approved drug in the United States, go for it if you want. You know, do I think personally there's enough data to do that? No. In fact, you know, I'm not sure it's in right to put it on at less than 10. I don't, I don't know. So, you know, it's all an individualized thing. You know, what are the risks? Does a person have premature history of you know, family history of heart disease, et cetera? So please take an individualized approach. But if you ask me in the main, do the epidemiological data suggest you should do that? I don't think the data are ready to suggest that. There are a couple of questions related to aspirin use. The new recommendations say starting aspirin for primary prevention in those who have more than a 20% risk, and given the data on aspirin and their decrease in cardiovascular risk, at least in men, this, should we be doing aspirin? Yeah. There are, okay, for aspirin, there are some data. Okay, and there was a, there's a study published in uh, OFID, o Open Forum for Infectious Disease by Gene Tryon, that aspirin, looking back at least retrospectively, there wasn't a huge effect of aspirin in HIV. In, the effect was actually less in HIV than in non-HIV. That may be because there are a bunch, there's a stew of other inflammatory factors going on. Now, the data you showed do at least suggest that it does lower thromboxane and should have its effect, but 
gene studies suggest that may not be the case. So I don't know what to say about aspirin. I think there's probably enough evidence that you should probably do it. Um, reprie in reprieve, we're not precluding people who are on aspirin, so we will be able to do an analysis to see whether you know aspirin and statins you know intersect and whether the use is is, is good. Um, I would say there, you know, again, certainly if someone has known cardiovascular disease, certainly had a heart attack, has extremely high risk, you should probably use aspirin. Where it becomes a bit more gray is the person who walks into your office, feels perfect, is 55 years old, LDL less than 130, uh, you know, do you put that person on aspirin just because they have HIV? I think that's a gray area, and I'm not sure what to tell you to do in that regard. Next question, uh, since HIV treatment as a general rule does not completely eliminate the excess cardiovascular disease risk in HIV, is there a difference among different treatment regimens mm -hmm. with regard to cardiovascular risk? Okay, so the old DAD studies tried to address this, and they were done in a different era, right? Remember those studies by Fritz Moller in the New England Journal? And those studies did suggest that PIs, those older generation of PIs, were more associated with cardiovascular disease. Then, of course, you have the, and that was old, old PIs. Then, of course, you have the raging controversy of Abacavir, which I can talk about. Um, the DAD type of studies using the newer generation of ARVs are not out there. I mean, they're, 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 those studies are always four or five years behind. So, you know, I think what I, what I would say about that is the newer drugs do seem better with respect to metabolic complications than the older version of drugs. So to the extent of in that 25% traditional bucket, these new drugs aggravate lipids less or aggravate glucose less, probably they would have a little bit of less of an association. But because none of the drugs, as far as I'm aware, completely eliminate immune activation, completely eliminate it, um, I don't think that the, any of them will be 100% effective um, to, to, you know, prevent heart disease on its own. And the data I'm showing you suggests that we probably need ART, which we desperately need to save the lives of these patients, but ART plus something else. Okay. Um. What effect do DPP-4 inhibitors have on cardiovascular disease risk in HIV? Um, that's being studied by Kevin Yaroshevsky at WashU more than, more than our group. Um, there, there is an excitement about DPP-4 inhibitors in the non-HIV world. Um, first of all, they, um, uh, they lower glucose, of course. Um, in the non-HIV world, they cause a bit of weight loss, so they're actually now being approved for obesity. Um, they do seem to have some anti-inflammatory properties, which is what Kevin has picked up on in his studies. And there's a very small study in JCM to show a positive effect on some of these immune markers. But there's no study on plaque, and there's no event study whatsoever. So I think that you know, if you're going to put your patients on those um, for diabetes, you could probably rest assured that you're probably helping the person. It's, it's absolutely not a drug I would put someone on right now to prevent heart disease because there's potential side effects with those drugs. They're heavy-duty drugs. So I think it's an interesting emerging story. Good, good question. Very good question. And last question. Should we even, given the lack of data for HIV infection included in the new guidelines, should we even use that calculator <laughs> in our patient population? <laughs> 
that calculator is the bane of my existence because we wrote this grant and we wrote this study before that calculator came out. And I'm just being honest with you. We we're going to use an LDL less than 130 as an entry criteria because I still believe that the LDL approach is probably better. Um, I can't tell you whether to use it or not. I, I, in, in, I, I'm not sure it's really doing us any service, great service in the HIV world. I think if, if you get a level that's like 20%, okay, a really, really high level on that, then I think, okay, that's a very high level. It's, you know, it's been shown to be, I think my question is what is happening at the lower levels. Um, I'd say until we get reprieve back, or some analogous study, you, you don't have much to use. Um, so probably I would go ahead and calculate a score. It's an excellent tool, by the way, despite it not being accurate per se. It is an excellent tool to show your patient that, gee, you have a high risk, my friend, uh, and let's focus on getting your risk down. And another, a nice thing to do with that calculator is to put it up on the screen, right, to some Joe, Joe X who's smoking, okay, and the rate's very high. And you, then you say, and you get to, and then take smoking out of the equation and hit the button again, right? And you can see the risk goes way down. So it's a very useful tool to, to teach your patient and to use for cardiovascular prevention, even, even, if, um, not, even if the results may not be entirely accurate. Um, it, is, it is a useful tool. Thank you. I hope that helps.